After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, He is a good man, others said, No, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on that Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Amen. Good morning. My name is Matt. I'm the youth pastor here. I work with Andrew um, and many others here with the youth group, both high school and middle school students. Um, and I, I was hanging out with a student uh, just recently, and we were talking about how they were doing, and they were sharing about recently what's been going on in their life. And then they said to me, I bet you've been having a good week. And that so struck me because there was this assumption that I'm just doing good all the time. There was this assumption that, that I've got it together. And that's not the case. Um, and I just want, before, before we dive into this text, I need to seek God's help. I'm weak. I'm fallible. And without his spirit working in me, without his spirit working in us through this text, it's no good. Um, so would you pray with me in that? I mean, you could even pray for me. I need his strength this morning. Uh, it hasn't been a great week, and I don't say that for pity, 
but for my dependency on Jesus. And all of us as responders, too, because just as I'm teaching this, I need to be responding to this text as well. We all need to be dependent on God. We can't do this. We can't respond to this message well because it is hard teaching on our own. We need it to be God's spirit that brings about the aroma of life that draws us to Jesus. So with that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, your ways are above ours. And I thank you for that, Lord. And and I'm sorry when I get misled in that. I get pretty excited about my ways sometimes. God, we want your ways to be what our heart beats for. God, would you search us this morning? Would we not put up walls to you wanting to have your way in us? Would we just offer our hearts, would we offer our lives to you and ask you to speak and say, God, would you have your way in me? Thank you, Jesus, for showing us grace upon grace, patience, time and time again, as you continually call us to yourself, call us to salvation, call us to be a redeemed people. And we need that, God. We need you desperately. Without you, there is no good thing. So would these be your words, Lord, and help me to just honor you as as Jesus, you honored your Father. And would we respond to you, Lord, in your name, amen. All righty. So first question for the morning, who are the real American Idol fans in the audience? Anybody? No? You can, a little hand here and there. Not, I'm not talking about like American Idol recently where it was like, let's cancel and then bring it back a year later. Like, and no one will remember that this was not a great show. But I'm talking about like Carrie Underwood, Kelly Clarkson, Ruben Studdard. Yeah. Thank you, Mary. I see that hand. Um, Right? Like back in the day when American Idol first got started, there's Simon, Randy, Paula. They were the judges um, for, for the show. So there was a season I really loved. My family and I were super into it uh, for a while. And we'd even vote. We'd send our votes in for, um, for the contestants. You know you did too, some of you out there. Um, laugh at me. Um, and it was on, like, you did it not texting it in, but landlines. And I know... Some of you are laughing at me because you're like, I was around before there were even landlines. But some people here don't even know what landlines are, right? So you'd call in, say who you're voting for, and you'd do your best to make the assessment of, of where the talent's at. Like, who deserves? you draw your conclusions. You would be the judge, Ryan Seacrest would say, at home. You're the, our judges at home. And there was one season I loved. It had Chris Daughtry on it. Any Daughtry fans out there? Oh, yeah. And one of the reasons I liked Chris Daughtry is he didn't necessarily have one of those, like, backstories of, like, oh, that's so sad and so hard, and you've overcome this and that. He was just a normal dude. I think he married his his high school sweetheart, two kids, down-to-earth guy. But the clip we're about to watch, it's down to the final four. It's Taylor Hicks, not a fan, Elliot Yamin, and they're safe. And now it's down to Chris Daughtry and Catherine McPhee. And one of them, based off the voting at home, the judgment from the people that have been sending their votes in, one of them is going home. So let's see what happens. And Ryan Seacrest, as always, is the worst. (laughs) Well, yeah, that was intense. 
right? <laughs> like, and Ryan does not know how to engage in that moment whatsoever. He's like, everyone thought you were going to win. You lost. You're going home. Like, oh, just right to the heart. Um, and then actually later in the clip, uh, he ends up saying, like, are you shocked? And it's like, well, yeah, right? You just, ever, you just said everyone thought you were the one that was going to win. But that was based off the judgment of people at home, based off the votes. And you can even feel in that clip that people think this is wrong, like this is incorrect. This was not the right conclusion to draw. This, was, this wasn't the, the right assessment to make. The, the, the people back home misjudged the situation, maybe assuming that he was going to be good to go. And if you look at the word misjudge in the definition, it's to form a wrong opinion or conclusion, to make a wrong and incorrect assessment or estimation of someone or something. And as we've been working through John so far, we've seen people make judgments of who Jesus is. Some judgments of Jesus have been people responding to him in faith, recognizing who he is and why he's come. But more recently, we've seen a lot of people misjudge Jesus to start to draw the wrong conclusions, make the wrong estimations of Jesus. At times, it looked like they had the right judgment, but then it turned out they misjudged him. Recently, we, we've been working through the feeding of the 5,000, which, is, as Greg talked about, probably was even more than that, thousands upon thousands of people where Jesus administers this miracle of, of making five loaves of bread and two fish go further than anyone could have ever imagined. And everybody is jacked. Everyone is stoked about Jesus. Everyone's sending all their votes in, like, I'm all about this guy. But then as we continue to work through that, Greg pointed out that these people were more excited about the miracles than they were the miracle worker. They thought maybe Jesus was just there to do the things that they wanted, to surprise them, to captivate them with what he was able to do. But they misjudged him because they weren't captivated with who he is. And then last week, we see after this miracle, Jesus has some hard teaching he shares things like, in order, in, in order to have life in me, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And whether they took that literally, or even if they started to make the connections of what that actually meant, people said, this is a hard teaching. And Jesus went from thousands upon thousands of followers down to the 12. Everybody leaves. Everybody's gone. And even then, Jesus says, and in you 12, there's one of you who is a devil. There's one of you who will betray me. Things are looking bleak. But we know with Jesus, outward appearances aren't what's most important. So a little to set the stage of the passage that we're in, you can actually go to that first slide, Alex, of uh, I think it's verses 1 through 5. Um, Set the stage a little bit. So what Andrew read talks about um, this Feast of Booths, not to be confused with Feast of Booze. Um, it was not recalling back to the wedding at Cana, turning water into wine. But this is the Feast of Booths, or maybe your translation says Tabernacles. And this was a celebratory feast for the Jews in that time and in that day, um, where they were looking back on their exodus from Egypt. 
They were reflecting on God setting them free from slavery. So for, for seven days, they would set up makeshift homes um, or, or, or tents um, that they would live in like they did as they left Egypt and were heading to the promised land. And so this was a time of, of remembering, a time of reflection. And here come, oh, no, set the stage a little bit more. Um, it also says that Judea, right, in verse 1, um, Jesus went about in Galilee, but he would not go about in Judea be, because they wanted to kill him. If we remember back to chapter 5, if you were here, why, why is Judea dangerous? Why do people want to kill Jesus there in Judea? I think we have a slide for that as well. Um, yeah, 518. So this is when Jesus heals the man by, by the pool, right? A man who could not walk heals him, but it's on the Sabbath. And you weren't to do any work on the Sabbath. And so then the Pharisees call this out in him, and then... Um, with that, not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. And they could not stand it. And they wanted to do away with Jesus. And this all took place in Judea. So now Judea is a hot spot for Jesus. He can't, he can't go there if he wants to live, or so it would seem. But he knows this. He knows it's unsafe. Back to verses 1 through 5. So we see his brothers, and Jesus' family isn't talked about a whole lot throughout the Gospels. There's, there's blips, there's moments along the way. But we see his brothers approach him. And his brothers come up to him, and I think of them almost as like talent agents or like sports agents or something like that, where they come up to Jesus, and they're like, they know what's just happened. And it, it's sometime after the fact, but Jesus has lost all these followers. And I imagine them thinking, how do we boost this guy's popularity again, right? So they go to Jesus and say, there's this feast that you should go to and maybe do some miracles so that everybody likes you again, so that your, your disciples come back to you and follow you once more. The brothers have a plan for Jesus that they think will work. And maybe they're doing it out of the goodness of their heart. Maybe they think they have Jesus's back. They're, they're his half-brothers. They have his back, and like, this is going to be good for you. This is helpful um, for you, and, and we want you to succeed in, in ministry. And from the naked eye, it looked like Jesus's ministry was deflating at that point. Or maybe it went from Jesus, oh, you're the half-brother of Jesus, the one that fed thousands, the one that healed the man by the pool. And then it went to, you're the brother of Jesus? That freak who, who said to eat his flesh and drink his blood? That guy who said that he's equal with God? You know him? And so there may be some underlying uh, circumstances that the brothers, they, they don't want negative attention that Jesus brings to them anymore. But really what John points out in this, whether this was good motives or impure motives on, on his brother's behalf, is that not even his brothers, in verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. Those closest to Jesus supposedly didn't understand who he was and why he had come. So then Jesus responds to them in verses 6 through 9. So let's look at that together. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, 
but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. My time has not yet come. And if we've been reading through John, as John assumes in this, and if you are here, as, as, as we've been working through John as a church too, Jesus saying, my time has not yet come, should trigger something in our brains that I feel like Jesus has said something like this before. And that should take us back to John chapter 2, at the wedding in Cana, where Jesus takes the water and turns it into wine. At this wedding, they run out, right, um, of the wine, and Jesus' mother knows, Mary, knows that he can do something about it, knows that he can act. And she, she approaches him, and, and Jesus responds to her, woman, my, my hour is not yet here. My time has not yet come. There's this time that Jesus is referring to. There's this hour that he knows is evident, and now is not the time at the wedding in Cana, and also it is not the time at the Feast of Tabernacles as well. But what's interesting in this passage that we're in is Jesus contrasts himself to his brothers. He says, my time is not now, your time is always, it's whenever. Your time is here, whenever you'd like it. The world hates me because I, I reveal, I, I, I show its evils, evil ways, but the world can't hate you. So what's Jesus saying here? Why is he juxtaposing his time with his brother's time? What does that mean? Well, the brothers having any time, right, that their time is whenever, is pretty much for each one of them, whenever they want to do something, they act, right? Whenever, whenever it, it's time to eat, whenever it's time to share, whenever it's, it's time to hang out, it's their time. And for us, often that is our world as well. When my wife asks me to do the dishes, I could be like, my time is not now. <laughs> my time's a little bit later when I feel like doing it. When I have to pick up after the dog, it is not the hour. The hour is not at hand. The hour is many hours from now. But then when it's time to hang out with my friends, the time is now, right, for me. Isn't that how we work sometimes in our flesh? My time is whenever. Whenever I choose, I have authority over my decisions, how I live, what my purpose is. And Jesus says to his brothers, I'm not like that. I, I'm under someone else's authority. If we look back at John 6, verse 38, and we have that on the screen, Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. Jesus is here to honor his father. His father has dictated a time, a purpose for why he has come. And so when God says it's time, Jesus is living into that. God, or Jesus is waiting for God's go-ahead in all decisions that he makes. That's why he reveals to the world its evil's ways, because his father wills it, and he honors his father in that. Not a job that anyone would really want. 
Jesus doesn't need to go to this feast to boost his popularity, to regain disciples, because he's not concerned with that. He's concerned with his Father's will. And so he won't go to this feast. But then something interesting happens in verse 10. Let's look at that. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up. What? Not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. Jesus says he's not going to this feast, but then we see in in verse 10, then after his brothers went up, he went up to this feast, but not in public, privately. And as we're looking at this, and maybe it's the first time, what this should cause in us at first is like, whoa, did Jesus just go back on what he said? Right? That is a, that is a, a normal response to this text. But then if we remember who Jesus says he is, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is no misleading. There is no redirecting of motives in Jesus. He is constant, unchanging, and he is true. So then what's going on here where he says, I'm not going to go, but then he goes later? Well, actually, the word that he says when when I'm not going to go up to this feast, he uses that same word earlier when he says, it is not my time yet. It is not yet my time. So maybe Jesus said, and even I think in the NIV it says that. Um, In the ESV it doesn't. Uh, So maybe Jesus said not yet, but maybe he did not. Maybe he just said, I'm not going to go up to this feast. But what John does point out is that Jesus went up, not publicly, but privately. Jesus doesn't do things. God doesn't do things under our terms, under how we dictate it. He does what the Father tells him to do. He's under the Father's authority. He's here to honor the Father. And so he goes to the feast, but not how his brothers wanted, under what his Father desires, under his Father's will. And once, once he arrives, there's whispers, because he's there and privately he didn't go, ha-ha, I've arrived, right? He shows up, and he's on the low, and people start to notice, hey, there's Jesus. He's the one that healed the man by the pool. He's the one that, that has had this hard teaching. And some start to whisper, I think he's a good man. And others say, no, he's leading the people astray. And once again, we see two more groups of people misjudge Jesus those that just recognize he's a good man are missing out that he's Lord, that he's Savior, and that he's God. And those that think that he's leading the people astray, the very purpose that Jesus has come is to lead those that have gone astray back to the Father, back to righteousness, back to right relationship with God. Verse 14 About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? 
So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority, authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Jesus gets up and begins to teach, and we see right away people are marveling at his teaching. They're marveling because they're like, did this guy go through any school like the Pharisees, like the religious leaders did? I don't think so, but how does he speak with such power? How does he un unveil these, these things of God, and how does he do it with such authority? Like he's commanding us as a people to follow what he's saying. How is he revealing this? And Jesus says, I'm not doing this on my own authority. I didn't take a speaking class, and now I'm good at this thing. God has given me my authority to teach in the ways that I'm teaching. He's the one. He's, he's where the power comes from. He's where the truth comes from. Anyone that speaks on their own authority is just doing it to glorify themselves. But I don't do that. I speak on his authority so that I might glorify the Father, that I might bring glory to him. And Jesus says to them pretty much, test this. Test to see if this is true. If you are doing God's will, see if my teachings line up with it. If you are doing the will of God, if you are following his ways, see if my teachings line up with it. Jesus brings his teachings and doing the will of God hand in hand on the same level. That to follow Jesus' teachings is to do the will of God. To do the will of God is to follow Jesus' teachings. But Jesus' teaching was revealing ultimately that they weren't doing God's will, that they weren't following God, and they hated that. They rejected that. And for us, if we want to do the will of God, uh, verbiage that gets used around church and with Christians a lot of the time, to follow God in his ways, we have to look, am I following Jesus' teachings? Like, do I look at what Jesus says and do I say, yes, that is what it means to have right relationship with the Father. That is what it means. This is why God has created us. And if we're honest, there are some of Jesus' teachings that are really hard for us. There are some of Jesus' teachings that really challenge us. It would be nice to say all of Jesus' teachings are just like, oh, easy, just like waking up. But when Jesus commands us to love our enemies, and not just to forgive our enemies or put up with our enemies, but to have enemy love for those that have wronged us, those that have done harm to us and don't want good for us, for us to forgive, to embrace, to invite them in to our space, to actually start to care for them, to want good for them, to pray for them, that is a hard teaching. So do we want to do the will of God? The sad thing in this story is the people that most often rejected Jesus' teachings were the most religious. We see the people that misjudged Jesus are the religious time and time again. We see that the Gentile often is the one that responds in faith in the Gospel of John, that they get it. 
more so than those that were supposed to get it, those that claimed to be doing the will of God. So then Jesus says to them in verse 19, Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And what Jesus is addressing here and how the crowd responds is both addressing a current issue that's taking place in the text, but there's a deeper issue too that's taking place here. At face value, Jesus is asking in Judea, why do you seek to kill me from healing that man on the Sabbath and claiming that God is my Father? And they're, they're pretty much like, who's seeking to kill you? And there's many people gathered here, probably not just the religious leaders. As many Jews had gathered. And they think he must have a demon. They're like, how? They're, it's, like, it's like if someone came in here and just was like, you're seeking to kill me. We're like, are you on drugs? Like, what's going on? Like, why would you say that in this place? That's not okay. It's their response that they just go drastic with it. You must have a demon. Why would you say that? But Jesus is also addressing something deeper. And John, as he writes this, is addressed something deeper. Because Jesus knows why he's come. He knows his purpose. He knows what the time is that the Lord has set. And that ultimately, it will be his death. That these people will kill him. That he will go to the cross. Because they're lawbreakers. Because they're sinners. Because they couldn't keep the law that God had given them. They would kill them. Why are you seeking to kill me? And in one voice, I imagine, they respond, Who? Who would seek to kill you? Why would this happen? And yet later, and John will see in one voice, probably even some of the same people will be shouting out, Crucify him. Crucify him. Do away with him. Romans 5, 6 through 9 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Christ came at just the right time and died for the ungodly, died for the unrighteous, those who could not keep the law. Verse 21. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry, angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Jesus is calling out them being hypocritical, that when he healed this man on the Sabbath, they're still, they're circumcising people on the Sabbath. And circumcision was to be an outward expression of an inward devotion to following God's ways, to following the law. It was a covenant that they were stepping into with God and saying, yes, I will follow your ways. 
And, and it was ordained that they could, they, they could circumcise on the Sabbath in order to keep the Sabbath holy. But now the one who has come, not to circumcise outwardly, but to circumcise our hearts to God, to give us an inward devotion to God, is there, and he makes a whole man well. He heals. And they say, how could you do that? How could you work on the Sabbath? He's like, my work is to do the will of God, is to bring the healing and restoration to your relationship with God that you need. I know what you actually need, but you're so caught up in your ways and your traditions, you have lost sight of why God gave you this. And now you're pointing the finger at me as if I'm doing something wrong. They have an outward appearance of faith, and yet inwardly, they're missing it. They've lost sight of their true devotion to the Lord. Romans 2.25 says, For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. As though they thought they were doing the right thing in doing this, they didn't realize that they needed a Savior still. That in their own works, and their own way of doing things, they could not be right with the Lord. In verse 24 says this, Jesus says, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with a right judgment. See me for who I really am. And that brings us to our, our truth statement. Jesus honors the Father in all he does and confronts the outward expressions of faith that are coupled with an incorrect judgment of who he is. Jesus is attacking their hypocrisy of their faith. We're out on the surface, they're like, we've got it together. We're doing the right thing. But then when Jesus probes deeper, they want nothing to do with it. And he says, if you reject me, you ultimately reject God. And that made me think of how easy it is to look the part of a Christian. How easy it is for us to have an outward appearance of everything's good. Sometimes just in life in general, but everything's good with God. I'm not struggling with anything. There's no doubt. There's, there's, I've had a good week. And yet we can ignore our need of a Savior. We can ignore how God wants to continue to work in us. We, we avoid or we don't see how God's still calling us to be redeemed time and time again in him. In 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16, and I, don't, I, I won't dive into the whole passage, but Paul talks about the gospel being the aroma of death to some and the aroma of life to others. This good news of needing a Savior and what Jesus has done, that he, at just the right time, died for the ungodly so that whoever believes in him might be saved, this is a good smell to those who are being saved. This is the aroma of life. It's pleasing. But to others, this is the aroma of death. There's a bad smell. It puts a bad taste in our mouths, thinking 
that we need a Savior, thinking that, that our ways on our own aren't good, that we need to honor someone else with how we live. Our life needs to be dictated by someone greater than us. And some of Jesus' teachings, if we were all just honest, sometimes they can come across to us as harsh and a bad smell. But we could read it, read about enemy love, read about uh, putting others' needs before our own, and it would be really easy to just turn the page and keep on reading. Be like, read it, good to go. Don't really have to dive into that today and pretend like it didn't smell bad. And this is a terrible example, but it was the only one I could think of. Imagine being on a first date, and I work with youth, so pardon my crassness in some of this. Imagine being on a first date. You've just got back from dinner. Windows are rolled up. Stomach is starting to turn a little. You know where this is going. And when you think it's safe, you're like, there's no way around this. And you just let out a little fart. I said it, and it's on the podcast now. It's a bummer, but it's there. You let it out, and you're like, I hope they don't smell that. Like, please, Lord, close their nostrils, because that would be the worst. But as time goes on, there's no way that they can ignore the smell of death that is now in the car, right? And you know it. And you assume they know it as well. You have two options. You can embrace it and admit, I farted, right? You can address the stench that is in the car. Or you can be like, whew, the mill is smelling bad today, right? <laughs> and then he or she's like, we're in Portland. There's no mill nearby, okay? But I think that that is what we do in this life sometimes. Things come across us. Some of God's ways, following God's ways, to, to us, they stink, they smell, but we choose to pretend like it doesn't exist, like it's not there. And not only does it affect us, but it affects other people around us as well. It does no good to pretend like we're in a different spot with God than we actually are. And these teachings were once the aroma of death to me. For a majority of my life, I did not follow Jesus, and I wanted nothing to do with him. And yet, for some reason, with my family and in my church, it was easier to put up a facade and pretend that I was good to go, and never letting anyone in. But at just the right time, the Lord showed me what he had done for me just the right time, I realized I had a Savior in Christ, and the aroma of life consumed my life, and it brought life upon life, grace upon grace, and it became my new identity. But it took me admitting where I was actually at with God, and I admitted that to him and to others around me, too. I admitted where I was actually at, and as a Christian, too, today, I am tempted at times to pretend like some of Jesus' ways aren't hard to follow. Some of Jesus' teachings aren't hard uh, for, me, for me to take in. 
And I think we have that temptation, and maybe even today there's some of the teachings that are going through your mind, and you're like, yeah, that one is tough. I don't know how I can do that. And Jesus says it does no good to have an outward appearance of following God if inwardly we're not devoted to him. It's hypocritical of us. It was for the people back then, and it is now as well. Because his teachings have the authority from the Father. And we want to know the Father. We want to walk in his ways. And we also, Jesus makes us admit what we actually think about him, what we believe about him as well. That we have to stack up what we believe about Jesus next to Jesus of the Bible and anything we've added Anything that we've taken away is incorrect. It has to go hand in hand. And we've received beliefs. We've inherited beliefs from a lot of different places, just as the Jews, as we'll we'll read about in chapter 8 as well, they inherited these beliefs from their fathers, and Jesus calls them out for that, that they just went through the motions. We've inherited cultural beliefs of what it looks like to live. We've inherited political beliefs. We've inherited beliefs from our families. We've inherited beliefs from our church backgrounds. But we're never too young or too old to take what we live and stack it up to Jesus to make sure it lines up and let the things fall away that don't instead of standing our ground for no reason at all and missing out on the Savior altogether. So does our outward line up with our inward? Does our outward appearance of faith line up with our inward devotion to God? Jesus' brothers misjudged him in a huge way, but later, after he dies and resurrects again, they come to belief. They come to know who he actually is. Went from the aroma of death to the aroma of life, and that's how God wants to work in us as well. And if the gospel is the aroma of life to you, then you're a brother and sister in Christ, and we're going to have the opportunity to take communion together, to remember what Jesus did to give us access to the Father, to right relationship with him by taking the elements. And the the men that will be serving it will say, um, Christ's body broken for you, Christ's blood shed for you as you take the elements. But if there's anything this morning that feels like the aroma of death, this good news, or any of Jesus' teachings, it does no good for us to pretend to just turn the page like it's not there. There's going to be people in the back hall that would love to pray with you, and they're people that need Jesus just like you and I. And we can be honest. We can come out and be real that some of Jesus' teachings or all of them stink to us. But we don't want it to stay that way. Not my will, but your will, God. That we surrender. Christians should be the best people on the planet at surrendering their ways. Surrendering to God and saying, have your way in me. Let's pray, and then as you feel led, approach the tables of communion. That you don't let us stay where we're at, Lord. That you continue to probe. You continue to draw us out to know you fully, to know you more. And Lord, would we just long for right relationship with you? Would we long to do your ways?
as we sang, Lord, we build our life on your love. It's a firm foundation. Our ways are misleading. And it's like a man building his house on the sand. But Lord, would we build our house on the rock? And would we need a demo team to come in and take out whatever's going to fall away, whatever is on shaky ground? We do, would we do that by being real and honest with you, Lord, of where we're at with you this morning? And thank you, Jesus, for being who you are and who you, that you say that you are. Would we see you rightly, Lord? Would we not make a misjudgment of who you are? But would we make a right judgment of who you are and how to respond? In your name, amen.